Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org daily. This past summer, Russian President Vladimir Putin won a referendum that clears the way for him to remain in office another decade and a half until the year 2036. Having already put his indelible stamp on Russia, the question for the international community is, what does Putin want to do with all that runway and how will he go about getting it? Dmitry Trenin is the director of the Carnegie Moscow Center. It's a think tank and regional affiliate of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And he joins us now from Moscow for his perspective. Здравствуйте, как дела? Добрый день, отлично, Стив. Good to hear. Uh, when it comes to COVID infections in Russia, the numbers that are on everybody's website say Russia ranks 49th by cases per million and 54th in the world by COVID deaths per million. Not as good as Germany, but much better than the U.S., much better than the U.K., much better than France. First question, should we trust those numbers? Well, I'm not sure that uh, international numbers uh, actually can be. It's not that they cannot be trusted, but I think that people in different countries use slightly different metrics when they uh, report the figures. Uh, I think I can. Uh, I, I would be guided not so much by the by the figures themselves as by the dynamic. For example, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the numbers started to uh, go up and up and up. And uh, we're now, uh, I think, experiencing a second wave of the COVID in, in Moscow and certainly in, in, in much of Russia. So uh, the situation is not, is not as, uh, you know, as calm and as, uh, as, as, as relatively quiet as some people would want to present it. I'm going to make a vast generalization here only for the purposes of, of asking uh, sort of what the situation is like among Muscovites and among Russians. But, you know, the book in Canada is that we've generally handled this not badly. The book in the United States is they've generally handled it pretty terribly. What's the book in Moscow and in Russia? Could have been worse. Could have been worse. Okay. So not bad then? Well, it's not, it's, 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 it's not a catastrophe, as some people thought it might become, but it's certainly not stellar performance, not at all. Hmm. Mind you, I look at the two heads of their respective governments, and Donald Trump, as we know, has now tested positive for COVID-19. Um, he even went so far as to urge people in the White House who were having meetings with him to take their masks off because he found them offensive. Vladimir Putin, on the other hand, apparently only allows people to meet with him after they can prove they have been in quarantine for two weeks. Um, how would you, what would you observe about the way these two men are handling this situation in that regard? Well, there, there's, there's a vast difference between uh, the president of the United States and the president of Russia in, in one response. There are many differences, but one crucial difference. The uh, United States is governed... Uh, essentially by institutions. There may be a, a very colorful person at the top of the system like Donald Trump, but essentially the United States is about institutions. Russia, although it has formal institutions in place, is essentially governed by people. So you can take Trump out of the equation 
uh, the United States uh, will uh, go back to plan B, for example, or plan succession or whatever. If you take Putin out of the equation, no one knows what will happen. And that's the big difference. Hmm. All right. Let me, in which case, ask you about some uh, troubling news on your border. There were, again this past weekend, thousands of demonstrators in the streets of Minsk in Belarus. This has been the pattern since the election that they recently had there where Alexander Lukashenko, who I think has been in power for three decades, uh, I guess a lot of people in in, um, that part of the world think he falsified the election results. Do you think Russia is seeing another Ukraine on its border? No, I don't think that it's another Ukraine, but it's a fairly difficult proposition. Essentially, what has happened is uh, uh, Lukashenko has been in power since 94, has lost uh, faith of the, I would say, of the majority of the people. And I think most people lost faith in him after the election, after uh, the election results were announced the way they were announced. And a lot of people thought that they had been uh, fooled by the by the results, by the announced results. Now, for Russia... Uh, this uh, this is both uh, uh, a danger, a danger of destabilization in perhaps the most strategically important area as far as Russian national security is concerned, because Belarus lies on the direct axis between Moscow and Berlin, geographically speaking. That's the uh, that's 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 the path of all invasions that have uh, happened in Russia, major invasions from the West have happened in in Russian history. So people take it very, very seriously, what happens in Belarus. On the other hand, Lukashenko, uh, although he professed to be uh, a friend of Russia, Russia, uh, was essentially, uh, particularly in the last few years, trying to drift away from Russia and, uh, you know, make friends again with the West, which opened up uh, uh, a prospect of Belarus... uh, in its quiet and soft way, leaving Russia. Uh, so now that he is uh, now he is he's is seen as illegitimate by a lot of people in Europe and uh, more broadly the West. He has no option other than to turn to Russia. Now Russia doesn't trust him, so for Russia the uh, the the job is to make sure that uh, they manage the Russians manage or help Belarus manage a political transition away from Lukashenko so that the popular demands are met, but at the same time keep Belarus a loyal partner and a close neighbor to Russia. It's, it's, a, very big, uh, it's a very big thing. Okay. Whether the Russian uh, government will be able to do that, um, it's anyone's guess. I was going to say, that sounds like a very difficult tightrope to walk. Do you think it can be done? Well, uh, if it cannot be done that I think we will see something uh, which potentially could be worse than what we have seen in Ukraine. Do people in Russia, I shouldn't say do people, is the preponderance of opinion in the Russian government that that these incidents in Belarus are Western-inspired, Western-influenced, and, uh, you know, like the color revolutions, like Orange Revolution, Green Revolution, and so on? Well, I think it's it's a mix. Uh, most people would say that uh, essentially it's uh, Lukashenko's fault. He could have actually he could have uh, he could have counted or he could have ordered that the votes accounted uh, the way they were cast. And I think he would have won the election with fifty plus percent of the votes cast. 
he decided to go to try to match Putin's record uh, at the uh, referendum going to up to 80. And that's what enraged a lot of people. So Lukashenko might have gone down in history as the founder of the modern Belarusian state. He is likely to end up as, uh, as someone who lost touch with reality and had to be evicted at the end of the day. Okay, let me turn the page with you to another part of the world, and I want to ask you about Russia's relationship with NATO member Turkey right now. But in doing so, uh, let's establish these facts on the ground first. Uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan are having a, I don't know, do you want to call it a war? They're certainly having battles right now over a disputed territory called Nagorno-Karabakh. This would be, I guess, the third spot where Turkey and Russia have come into conflict, the first two being Libya and Syria. And I guess I want to know from you how you would characterize the relationship today between Russia and Turkey. Turkey is an expanding power. Uh, President Erdogan certainly thinks of himself as the, as the rightful uh, descendant and successor to the sultans of the Ottoman Empire. And of course, the, the Caucasus used to be part of the empire. Uh, he is... Um, he is very much uh, supporting one of the sides in this dispute, Azerbaijan. Uh, you're right to say that uh, Russian Turkish relations have been uh, very rocky recently. But at the same time, you would agree, I think, that uh, Presidents Putin and Erdogan have managed to somehow sort out uh, their, their, their not, not exactly sort out the problems, but uh, sort out their differences and and sometimes splitting the difference, sometimes pretending that uh, uh, the issue is, is, uh, is, is, let's say, is put it to one side, uh, both in Libya and in Syria, although the uh, Russian-Turkish uh, differences were real, it never came to a, to, to a physical clash, physical collision. And I think that the Turks realize that there are red lines in uh, the Caucasus that uh, should they cross them, could lead to, call it war. That will be a a real regional engagement between two fairly big powers. Right now, there is a war, but the war is uh, contained to the Armenians and the Azeris. And uh, this is still manageable. If it comes to Turkey and Russia, then I don't think it will be that easily to manage. Well, I wonder if you can put, um, put us in the heads of the average Russian person who, as we know, 40 years ago, eventually got to a point where they saw the catastrophic losses accumulating over Russia's war in Afghanistan, the then Soviet Union's war in Afghanistan, and eventually the people really thought, that's enough, it's just too much already. How much loss of life by Russians do you think the Russian people are prepared to accept today as Putin engages in the world the way he is? Well, um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's the question that Putin takes uh, very seriously. I remember when uh, news broke out about Ru- the Russian operation in Syria exactly five years ago, I had members of my staff asking me the question of what the likelihood was of their sons being uh, sent to the uh, front in uh, Syria. And of course, I, 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 had, I, I, I reassured them that uh, it was going to be a very different operation. The Russian military today is, uh, is, uh, is, is consistent of more professional soldiers than conscript soldiers. 
and uh, conscript soldiers are not sent to places like Syria. So there is a loss of life, but uh, in the last five years, uh, the, uh, the number of lives lost by Russian servicemen in uh, Syria has been, uh, well, somewhat over 100, but uh, it's not the kind of losses that uh, the Soviet Union, that was Russia's name then, sustained during the war in Afghanistan, 13,000 people dead, and uh, most of them were conscript soldiers. It's interesting that you say this is a question that Putin really focuses on and cares about a great deal. Why do you think that's the case, since obviously his grip on the country and on his ability to make foreign policy is absolute at the moment? So why does he care about this? Well, he cares about it because uh, Putin's rule, its authoritarian rule, you may, uh, uh, you w- I think you would agree with that, and you, you said as much, but that authoritarianism is, is based on, let's say, the consent of the governed. Last time I looked, uh, which was a few minutes ago, Putin's, uh, uh, let's say, the level of popular confidence in Putin was uh, 58%, which was ahead of any other institution in Russia. The, the church has 42% or religious organization, organizations at 42%. Uh, political parties in the low 20s. So Putin is at the top with 58, but that is thanks to a certain uh, contract, if you like, or a certain uh, unspoken uh, accord that exists between him and, uh, and, and the Russian people. And one of the elements of that is that you never send our soldiers in, uh, in the harm's way unless it is uh, clearly in the defense of the motherland. And Syria is not defense of the motherland. Whatever happens in the South Caucasus is not. So Putin is uh, pretty much uh, constrained by uh, public opinion in Russia. Hmm. Now, that's something that uh, perhaps Western observers don't necessarily take into account. You think Donald Trump would be pretty happy with 58 percent today? (laughs) Do I need to answer? (laughs) No, you don't. Let's move on. Let's talk about uh, Vladimir Putin's dealings with the West. You know, some people say it's as simple as uh, breaking up NATO. That is exactly what what Vladimir Putin wants to do, and that is the grand sum total of his vision towards dealing with Western powers. What do you say? Well, I would say it's uh, it's a it's it's a straw man uh, that that uh, that people uh, let's say that Trump's uh, opponents are creating. NATO is, uh, if anything. Uh, is uh, getting, uh, let's say, more focused on Russia. Uh, its uh, military forces, token as they may be, are uh, moving closer to Russia. Uh, there is um, the, the German and American uh, units are currently deployed in the Baltic states. And uh, you may say NATO units today are deployed within a two-hour drive from St. Petersburg, Russia's northern capital. If uh, Belarus were to go uh, the wrong direction from Moscow's standpoint, then uh, NATO forces could be deployed uh, 400 kilometers west of uh, the Kremlin. So we're talking about a totally different uh, strategic picture. Uh, Poland is becoming a a hub for uh, U.S. Uh, forces in in Eastern Europe. There is a 
there's an American brigade, U.S. Uh, brigade, uh, deployed to be deployed, uh, being deployed in uh, in Poland. And uh, again, we're not talking about a real threat to Russia. A, a brigade, a battalion, uh, are not big enough, not uh, threatening enough to scare uh, the Russian general staff. I'm not suggesting that there's some kind of a annoyer. But uh, NATO is so much more focused since 2014 on Russia than it's ever been. Uh, you have so many uh, more visits by NATO warships to the Black Sea. You have uh, just recently a couple of flights by uh, B-52 strategic bombers across Ukraine all the way to Crimea. And then they turn back a couple of minutes before they would have reached uh, Russian territory. Or if you look at the from, at it from Kiev and occupied territory. So it's a kind of, uh, you know, people are not losing uh, their vigilance, let's put it that way, as a result. No, they, there's, there's no question uh, that NATO is uh, becoming more focused on Russia, that the NATO countries are going to pay up, that they are increasing their uh, military spending, also thanks to Donald Trump's leaning very hard on some of those people. So the, that's not the impression that you get in Moscow. Trump is not wrecking NATO. Not well, at all. Let me ask you perhaps a more useful question this time about Donald Trump, which is we've had considerable conversations on this program about whether the president is the most useful idiot to Russia that America has ever had. Or conversely, we have heard the other side of the story, which is he's been tough on Russia. He's put sanctions on Russia, even though he says some incredibly inane things uh, about his relationship with Russia, uh, the record actually indicates he's been tough. Where do you come down on this? Well, I think that the fact that um, a lot of people in the United States and a lot of people uh, in U.S. Congress in particular believe that Trump's election in 2016 had a lot to do with Russian election meddling, basically uh, resulted in uh, the United States Congress uh, passing a number of uh, sanctions bills uh, on Russia. So whatever uh, Trump's real feelings or his uh, professed feelings about Russia, whatever his rhetoric, the relationship uh, both in material and rhetorical terms between Russia and the United States has never been as bad today um, in the last uh, maybe 50 years since the start of detente. Hmm. So it's it's really, again, I don't care what Trump as, as a person thinks about Russia. What I do care about is uh, the, uh, the, the the level of sanctions pressure. The uh, and, and I just said uh, a few moments ago about the growth of uh, NATO presence on Russia's western borders. So if I look at these things, and this is what most serious people are in Russia are looking at, uh, you will see that whatever he believes in, or whatever he thinks, whatever he, his views of Putin are, uh, under that president, the relationship has come to the point where the only item on the U.S.-Russian agenda is avoiding an inadvertent military collision between U.S. and Russian armed forces. That's where we are in this world. Hmm. All right. In our last minute and change here, I want to quote from your book, which is simply called Russia. And here's the quote. Historically, Russia has been governed in an authoritarian fashion, whatever the political system or the ideology of its ruler. 
Orthodox monarch, Soviet communism, or crony capitalism. This mode of governance abhors alternatives. This modus operandi of the rulers is upheld by deep-seated fears among the people of domestic turmoil or foreign invasion. These fears are gradually subsiding, but the fundamental principle of unity of state power is unlikely to change in the next several decades. If there is a core to Russian political culture, then, that is not about to change anytime soon, as you tell us, what's in that core? Well, the core of that political culture, I think, is the, call it the unity of command. Uh, In Russia... Uh, again, we're talking about the traditional core, the traditional political culture, which, as I said, is is changing, although the change is, is fairly slow. So uh, what, what I think the Russians uh, historically um, are afraid of is uh, uh, some kind of an oligarchy in which the, um, the boyars are only fighting among themselves and don't care about the rest of the people who have to suffer because it will be through them that each of the boyars will try to get to the other. Uh, and, uh, of course, this invites uh, foreign, um, f- foreign intervention or foreign influence, whatever you call it. And uh, Russia has gone through these periods historically, and these periods have been even worse in many ways. Uh, than uh, the periods of uh, foreign invasion. That's Dmitry Trenin. He is the director of the Carnegie Moscow Center, and uh, we always appreciate your visits to our program. Spasiba and dosvidaniya. Thank you very much. See you again soon, I hope. Goodbye. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.